Welcome to the Brady Hayward Podcast, the podcast where we look at engineering failures and disasters. This is the addendum episode to our Apollo 13 series. We'll jump into more of the technical details of the flight. We'll talk about what caused the explosion of Oxygen Tank 2. And we'll even take a look at some of the key aspects of Ron Howard's movie. But this episode carries a warning. Beware. This is going to get geeky. Unapologetically. Hello everyone, finally we have finished our Apollo 13 series and we've had a huge response to this series from all over the world so thank you for giving this series a go, thank you for listening, thank you for getting in touch on social media and giving feedback and thank you for recommending it to your friends, it's been fantastic and I feel I need to give a special shout out to all our listeners in Germany we've just had this incredible response from Germany so thank you very much So what are we going to talk about in this addendum episode? Well, the idea for this addendum episode grew as we released each episode of the series. So during recording, we found we had to leave out a lot of material, particularly technical material. There just wasn't room to keep a lot of it in. Well, there there sort of was room, but the problem was that there wasn't a way to keep a lot of this technical detail in and keep the story moving and keep the tension in it. And one of the key things we left out was the cause of the explosion of Oxygen Tank 2. Now, we did write a whole sequence about it, but there just wasn't anywhere in the series where it sort of naturally sat, and we kept moving it around for a while, and it just wasn't working, so in the end, we just took it out. And you'll see when we talk about the reason for this failure later on in this addendum episode, it's a really involved story, but I think it's a really fascinating one as well. So one of the reasons for this addendum is to dig a lot deeper into the cause of the failure, as well as looking at a lot more detail on some of the more technical parts of the mission. And another reason, which is really a self-indulgent reason, is to talk about the Apollo 13 movie starring Tom Hanks, the Ron Howard movie. And I want to talk a little about it because I absolutely love the movie and it does a pretty incredible job of telling the story of Apollo 13 in just two and a half hours. And as the episodes of this podcast series went out, people got in touch asking about the differences between some of the scenes in the podcast and some of the scenes in the movie. So I thought it would be interesting to talk about the movie and talk about how they tackled scenes differently to the way they happened in real life and the way that we depicted them on this podcast. And it's important to say that when we're discussing these differences, this is no way a criticism of the movie because, as I said, I I love it. It's just interesting to see the writing decisions that they had to make in order to make this movie work. So in some ways, this episode is a sort of a behind-the-scenes look at Apollo 13. It's like the DVD extras. So our plan is to step through the series, episode by episode, and have a chat about each of them in turn. Or at least have a chat about the stuff that happened that I was really interested in. And I warned you it'd get geeky, and it will, but I suspect if you're a space fan, it won't get geeky at all. And I can imagine you're going to get in touch and tell me that I've presented all this way too simplistically. And, And I have, and that's been a deliberate choice but this podcast is not necessarily aimed at the space fan, it's, it's aimed at the lay person. So it was important to try and break things down so people could understand them. But before we get into all that, let's talk about some of the reference material we used to put the series together. So if you want to learn more about Apollo 13, here are the places to go. 
So the key reference, without a doubt, is the book titled Apollo 13. Now this was originally released as Lost Moon and it was written by Jim Lovell and Jeffrey Kluger. And it's a fantastic read. And I've been a big fan of this book for a long time before we even began thinking of writing a podcast series on the subject. Now this book is also the basis of the Apollo 13 movie. And if you like Jeffrey Kluger's writing, which you should because it's great, he also wrote an excellent book on Apollo 8 called Apollo 8. Now it's fantastic as well. And I have to admit that as much as I love the story of Apollo 13, I think I prefer the story of Apollo 8. Even though everything went right on that mission, it's still a pretty profound story. So that's the Apollo 13 book. Now another key book was Gene Kranz's biography called Failure is Not an Option. And this phrase, failure is not an option, was made famous in the movie when Gene Kranz tells the Tiger team in room 210 that failure is not an option. But the funny thing is that I don't think Kranz ever actually said it during the crisis, which is why it's not in the podcast. I saw somewhere that it was the scriptwriters for the movie that came up with the line, and the argument goes that Kranz may not have actually said the line, but it's the sort of dramatic statement that he would have made to his team anyway. So this book was really important in terms of getting inside Kranz's head and understanding how he was thinking during the mission. And it really shows what was going on in his mind during that re-entry sequence, which is so important in the podcast. And the book that really fleshed out the rest of the characters in Mission Control was titled Go Flight by Rick Houston and Milt Heflin. Now, this book tells the stories of the NASA missions from the perspective of the people in Mission Control. And as you'd expect, there's a large section on Apollo 13. So this book is all about the flight controllers. And in addition to this book, there's a really great documentary on Netflix, which is based on this book called Mission Control. And it has interviews with a lot of the key people who appear in the podcast. It has John Aaron, Jerry Bostick, Jerry Griffin, Glenn Lunny, Chris Craft, and a good few more. And if you still want more information after reading the book and watching the documentary, then check out a podcast by Rick Houston, who co-wrote the book, called Go Flight. And on that, Rick interviews people from Mission Control as well as some of the astronauts too. Then we come to some of the more technical books on the subject. And in terms of techie books, it's really hard to go by W. David Woods' exceptional How Apollo Flew to the Moon. It covers all the technical background on the Apollo program and it really is geek heaven. It's full of photographs and it explains stuff like how the guidance platforms work, what equipment they used on the moon, etc., etc. So, if you're interested in the technical aspects of Apollo, then go out and get your hands on David's book. And after our series went out, David actually got in touch. He really enjoyed the series. And I have to say, getting feedback from someone like him with his knowledge was absolutely fantastic. So thank you, David, if you're listening. Now, as well as this book, David also wrote a book on the Saturn V rocket. It's full of photographs and drawings, and it's really good too. And if you want more from David, then go out and get the episodes of the Omega Tau podcast, where he was a guest. Now, if you don't know this podcast, then give it a go. It looks at all things science and engineering. Marcus is the host, and he spends hours interviewing people and digging into difficult technical concepts. It's great. So David was a guest on a number of occasions on the Omega Tau podcast, and in these interviews, he covers how Apollo worked. Now, I honestly can't recommend these episodes enough. They're really brilliant, and I've included a link to the podcast in the show notes. And then there's the Apollo 13 Minute podcast, and again, I've put a link in the show notes. In each episode of this podcast series, the hosts take a single minute 
from the Apollo 13 movie. And they discuss what's happening in that single minute. And this can be anything from the history of the space program to discussions of what other movies some of the actors are in. They even have astronauts in the show as special guests. For example, Frank Borman from Apollo 8 was on it. But one of the things about this show that I love is that they go into the background of not only the story of Apollo 13, but also the space program in general. And there's one last podcast that's really important that deserves a mention, which actually came out after our Apollo 13 series, and that is Kevin Fong's 13 Minutes to the Moon. It is just fantastic. If you're a space fan, you've probably listened to it already. But if you haven't, go out and listen to Kevin Fong's 13 Minutes to the Moon. So that's some of the reference material you can go out and get your hands on if you want to learn more about Apollo 13. Let's start with episode one of the series. And we'll start with the launch, which is really all about the Saturn V. Now this Saturn V is an incredible machine. It was built by three separate contractors, as we said in the podcast. This thing weighed about 3,000 ton and it was 110 meters tall. Now what's really incredible is it took a rocket of this huge size to get the command module, service module and lunar module on their way to the moon. Now to understand why you need a rocket this big, you need to understand one of the key aspects of the business of sending rockets into space, and that's weight. You have to keep the weight of the rocket down, because if you don't, it gets too heavy and it won't get off the ground. So one of the easiest ways to think about it is like this. So you have a rocket with a certain payload, and in this rocket you have a certain amount of fuel to launch it and fire it towards the moon. Now say that you decide that you want to add a little more payload to the rocket. And let's say that it's not even that much extra mass that you're adding. You do so, but now say you realize that there's not enough fuel in the rocket to launch it and get it up to the required speed. So okay, you solved that problem by adding more fuel. But now, and this is the really important bit, you've also added more mass. So now you need to add more fuel again to cope with this extra mass, which in turn means you need to add more mass and on it goes. You're now chasing your tail. Your decision to add more mass is a very big deal. Now this relationship between payload mass versus the mass of fuel and the mass of the rocket was worked out way back in 1903 by a guy called Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, which I've probably butchered the pronunciation of. He developed a piece of mathematics called the rocket equation, and it's sometimes referred to as the Tsiolkovsky rocket equation. Now the equation seems to have been worked out long before Tsiolkovsky did it, but he was the first that was credited with applying it to rockets. So the Saturn V had to be as large as it was to actually get the job done. And to give you an idea of just how much was needed to get it off the ground, have a listen to this. When the first stage is finished doing its job, which happens at about two and a half minutes into the flight, it's cut loose during staging, which you heard in episode one. And when this first stage is dropped, the Saturn V has lost a pretty incredible 77% of its initial mass. So 77% of its initial mass was needed to get it off the ground and build up speed during the first two and a half minutes of flight. And this weight issue is why they had staging. You drop the mass that you don't need progressively, so you're getting more bang for your buck with your fuel. So staying with episode one, the five engines on the bottom of the Saturn V have some serious power. Each engine uses one ton of kerosene and two tons of liquid oxygen per second. So that means with all five engines running, it's consuming 13.5 tonne of fuel per second. In terms of power, 
power they're using is equivalent to the peak electricity demand of the UK, 60 gigawatts. And this fuel has to be pumped into the combustion chamber, which is done using fuel pumps. Now just think about how sophisticated a fuel pump has to be to pump these tons of propellant per second. They have to be incredibly fast. And I think I remember David Woods saying on the Omega Tau podcast that if you dropped one of these pumps in an Olympic-sized swimming pool, you'd empty it in 60 seconds. I think for me, when I learn how complicated something like a fuel pump is, which is only one of the pieces of the Saturn V, you start to get some understanding of why at the height of the space program there were 400,000 people working on it. Designing even some of the simplest pieces of these machines was insanely complicated because they had to do incredible things. And you'll see this later on when we talk about Oxygen Tank 2 and why it exploded. Designing and building a simple, in air quotes, oxygen tank is a very complicated task. Now let's talk about the launch sequence in the movie. Now in the movie, Gene Kranz is shown getting his white vest just before the launch, and he's the flight director for the whole launch sequence. But in real life, Gene wasn't on shift. Milton Windler was. And you can hear him being mentioned in the NASA audio in our podcast. And it's here you see the sort of challenges the movie writers had when they were putting together the script. They needed to introduce the character of Gene Kranz early, so they put him in the launch, so that by the time we start the crisis, we, as the audience, know him well. I think I saw an interview with someone related to the movie, and he said, you know, you can't make a movie with 20 main characters. They had to leave people out, and some people had to be packed into composite characters. So for completeness, there were four flight directors for the mission. Gene Kranz and Glenn Lunny feature heavily in both the movie and the podcast. Then there's Jerry Griffin, who features quite a bit in the podcast, but he isn't really in the movie. And I'm afraid Milton Windler only gets a passing mention in the podcast, and he's not really in the movie at all. So back to the launch. They drop stage one, and then stage two is firing, and when it's finished, we have the last stage, the S-4B firing, and putting them in orbit. I think it's worthwhile geeking out a little bit here on the very concept of orbit. So before I became interested in Apollo 13, I thought a rocket simply fired and pushed itself up into space. Whatever up into space was, I I really wasn't that sure. But this is what actually happens. The rocket is trying to push itself upwards, but it's also trying to fly around the Earth. So what it does is it fires and pushes itself upwards at an angle. So it's first trying to gain altitude. But that's not enough. After it gets some altitude, it starts to fly horizontally. And you'll hear the ABC news commentators talking about it levelling off in the podcast. So if we jump to the end, what it's really trying to do is fly around the Earth at about 17,500 miles an hour. And if it does, it will attain orbit. So the primary job of the rocket is not just to go upwards, but it also needs to have the ability to level off and fly horizontally and accelerate until it reaches the required speed to stay in orbit. If it's too heavy to do this, or it doesn't have enough fuel to reach this speed, then sorry, it won't make orbit. And even the concept of orbit is a little funny for us lay people. You sort of think that if you can attain orbit, it's like some sort of magic circle you get into that will prevent you falling back to Earth, and you'll stay up there. But the reality is even more interesting, and there's a fantastic description of this in David Woods' book, How Apollo Flew to the Moon. You're not actually staying up there in space and being prevented from falling. In fact, you're falling back to Earth all the time. But as well as falling back to Earth because of gravity, you're also moving forward because you have horizontal speed. 
Think of it like this. Your speed is making you shoot off on a tangent away from the earth, which will essentially increase your height above the earth. So at the same time as you're gaining altitude because of your speed, you're losing it because Earth's gravity is pulling you downwards. Now this was really simplistic because orbits are actually ellipses, not circles, so you're not necessarily staying the same height above the Earth, but you are going round the Earth. And David has a great illustration in his book to help explain this in a much more intuitive way. Imagine you're standing on top of a tower and you throw a box full of beads horizontally out in front of you. Now assume there's no air resistance. So the speed of the box remains the same. It doesn't slow down. This box will fly straight out, then arc down towards the ground, and it'll land. And it arcs down because of gravity. Now the faster you throw the box, the further it will travel before it falls and hits the ground. Now, imagine you start throwing it faster and faster. It will go further and further before it hits the ground. Now, imagine you throw it at 17,500 miles an hour. The box flies out horizontally and begins to arc down. But because it's travelling so fast, the distance it arcs down will be compensated by the fact that the earth is also arcing down. You're throwing it so fast that as the box arcs downwards, it's actually following the curve of the earth. So now, the height of the box above the ground remains the same. The box never hits the ground. The box is now in orbit. Now this is all very simplistic as I said, but you get the idea. So in a way, the Saturn V is just like the box. It needs to be thrown fast enough to achieve the right speed to achieve orbit, and the only way it can achieve this speed is with engines so powerful that it can accelerate from a standstill to 17,500 miles an hour, while at the same time getting it up above the Earth to a height of above 100 miles. But even that's not quite right. And here's a little piece of info that I like. When the rocket is sitting on the pad at the Cape, it looks like it has zero velocity. But that's not true. It already has a speed. A speed of about a thousand miles an hour. Now the reason it has this speed is because relative to space, the rocket is moving. Because the pad's moving. Because that spot on the Earth is moving because the Earth is rotating. So in actual fact, the Saturn V has to get from about 1,000 miles an hour to about 17,500 miles an hour. And this is one of the reasons that the rockets launch towards the east, or close to an easterly direction. The Earth is rotating towards the east, so they want to take advantage of their initial velocity. Okay, so now we get to the end of the launch sequence, and as we've said, this is the point where the rocket is at the correct altitude and the correct speed, and it's in orbit. But in the podcast, we didn't cover what happens next. So in simple terms, they go round the Earth twice in what's nicely known as the parking orbit. And during this time, they check out all their systems and make sure everything is working okay. Then they do their TLI, their Translunar Injection. Now, this is an engine burn on the S4B, and this sends it on a path towards the moon. And I think it's worthwhile chatting about this because it's incredibly complicated, but very, very cool. What are we actually doing? Well, all they're really doing is firing their engine, which is accelerating them and increasing their speed. So this burn increases their speed from about 17,500 miles per hour to about 24,000 miles per hour. So now they're going faster. But what does that mean from an orbital perspective? Well, if they're going faster, then this means they are shooting out along that tangent on a faster rate than they're falling towards the Earth. Now, if we forget about the moon for a moment, this means they will not travel around the Earth in a circle or a tight ellipse. 
they will travel round it on a long ellipse with the earth stuck at one end of the ellipse. This is the path they'll carve out in space. One way to think about it is that this increase in speed is producing an elongated orbit. And remember that the engines only fire long enough to get the ship on this path. Then they shut down. So why will Apollo 13 follow an elliptical path? Well, as it gets the boost in speed and starts out along an elliptical path, it has a large speed. But as it moves away from the Earth, the Earth's gravity is still acting on it. It's trying to drag it back. And it's slowly reducing the large velocity of the spacecraft. Think of the Earth's gravity as sapping the speed from the spacecraft. And this goes on and on until it not only saps the outward velocity from the spacecraft, but it actually bends the spacecraft back round and now it's pulling it towards the Earth. Now, instead of sapping speed, it's adding speed to the spacecraft, pulling it faster and faster and faster. So if we ignore the moon, this is what would happen. But of course we can't ignore the moon, because this is the actual cool bit. NASA's Flight Dynamics Officer, the brilliantly named FIDO, calculates this pad or trajectory and they time it so that when the spacecraft is moving away from the Earth, this flight path will actually intersect with the Moon's path. In other words, all this time as the spacecraft is on its three-day journey towards the Moon, the Moon is merrily making its way around the Earth at over 2,000 miles per hour. So think about that for a moment. Apollo 13 does not fly towards the Moon. Instead, Apollo 13 flies off into space, aiming at a point where the moon will be in three days' time. And this is one of the geekiest technical errors in the movie. As they're doing their TLI, you see Apollo 13 with the moon in the distance, but in real life, the moon wouldn't be there yet. So Apollo 13 fires its engine for TLI, sets off on this path. Meanwhile, the moon orbits the Earth, and at a certain point along its trajectory, the moon's gravity starts to affect the spacecraft. And what ultimately happens, and the FIDO has to calculate all this, the moon's gravity will bend Apollo 13 off its elliptical flight path and pull it towards the moon. And if the FIDO has done the job correctly, this will mean that when Apollo 13 arrives at the moon, it will be swept around the back of the moon and slingshot back towards the Earth but it needs to be only around 69 miles above the surface of the moon when it gets there. And in our podcast, in episode 3, you discover that Apollo 13 wasn't on this path, this free return trajectory, and they actually needed to do a burn after the incident to put it back on this path so they could go around the moon. But if you still need to get a feel for just how amazing all this is, Robert Kirsten in his book Rocket Man sets out the difficulty of getting this right. Imagine you're throwing a dart. Imagine this dart is Apollo 13. So as you're throwing it, you're throwing it at a certain angle and you're giving it an initial velocity. This is the same as the burn that takes place during TLI. Now, the following is all to scale. You throw the dart. At the same time, imagine someone else throwing a peach in the air. The peach is the moon and it's moving as well. Your challenge is that when you throw the dart, you need to make that dart travel a distance of 28 feet. And when it travels that far, it has to intersect the path the peach is travelling on. Because just like the moon, the peach hasn't reached that point in space yet. Now, when the dart and peach meet, they have to meet in such a way that the tip of the dart will graze the top of the fuzz on the peach. Any higher and you'll probably be too higher, any lower you could stab the peach. This is the challenge the Fidos have when they're working out 
their burn details. So in Apollo 13, they do their TLI, um, and they're now on the way to the moon. And once they've done this maneuver, they start a new maneuver called transposition docking and extraction. Now, I left all of this out of the podcast, but if you're interested in what this looks like, then you can see it covered in the Apollo 13 movie. And it's also covered in First Man and Apollo 11. And I've also included in the show notes some links to YouTube videos prepared by Jared Owen. And these wonderful little animations step you through the entire Apollo mission. So go check them out and they'll take you through all the stages of the launch of the Saturn V. They will explain visually all the orbital stuff that I've been going on about. And they will even show you how the moon landing and re-entry worked as well. They're really great. But essentially what happens in transposition, docking and extraction is that we have the S4B and it looks like a normal rocket with one engine. Now at the tip of this rocket is a cone and that is the command module. Then behind the cone is the service module and it's a cylinder as we all know from the podcast. Then behind this is the rest of the S4B with the big engine at the back of it. Now inside the rest of the rocket is the lunar module, all tucked neatly away. So what happens is that the command module and service module detach from the S4B. This happens because four panels on the side of the rocket pop off and the command and service module is released. Now it moves forward away from the S4B, then it does a U-turn through 180 degrees and it's now pointing back towards the S4B. Now this is called the transposition piece of the maneuver. And this leaves the point at the top of the command module pointing back towards the S4B and the lunar module. So now the command and service module fire jets and move slowly towards the S4B and they're aiming for the top of the lunar module and they keep moving towards the lunar module until the probe on the top of the command module clips into place on the lunar module and this is the docking part of the maneuver. Now that they're connected, the command and service module fire its jets in the opposite direction and they pull the lunar module out of the S4B and this is the extraction part of the maneuver. Now, a few things about all this. They're doing all this while all the parts of the spacecraft and the S4B are moving at speeds of around 24,000 miles an hour. But because they're all moving relative to one another, this is a manageable problem. The second thing is that although the S4B is useless and really plays no further role in the mission, the FIDO does set it on a course to collide with the moon. And the reason for this is that, and this is briefly discussed at the beginning of the launch sequence by the commentators in the podcast, NASA want this stage to impact the moon. And the reason they want it to impact the moon is because they have seismic equipment on the moon. This is the ALSEP base that the commentators mentioned during the launch sequence in the podcast. And the last thing that I think is important about all this is the configuration the spacecraft are in. The arrangement with the lunar module connected to the command module and the command module connected to the service module is known as the stack. And this is the configuration that Apollo 13 stays in until it has its explosion. Now, the main reason we didn't cover any of this in the podcast was because I wanted to get to Gene Kranz. And I think to really get a grasp of what drove Kranz, you need to see how his thinking was formed in the aftermath of the Apollo 1 fire, which is why we spend some time with that fire. To me, this is the key to understanding how he saw the world and how he expected mission control to perform. And this brings us up to the time of the explosion. And before we get there, it's probably a good idea to talk about Ken Mattingly. Now, as you know from the podcast, up until two days prior to the launch, he was part of the Apollo 13 crew. But when Charlie Duke and the backup crew got the measles, and they found out that Mattingly never had them, and therefore was at risk of getting them now, he got bumped from the mission. 
And we didn't spend a lot of time on this because it's really well covered in the movie. And in the movie you see a scene where Jim Lovell tells Mattingly that he's being bumped. But in real life, Mattingly found out in a much harsher way. Now he did know something was up because there were so many medical tests going on. But the way he found out was that he was driving and listening to his car radio when the news announcer broke the news that Mattingly was out and Swaggart was in. He didn't even hear it in person. But Dick Slayton did try and look after him and he asked him what he needed. And Mattingly said he didn't want to be near the launch site. So Dick gave him permission to go back to Houston. So in the movie he's depicted as standing at the Cape watching the launch. But in reality he was back in Houston and he was watching it in Mission Control. And you'll hear reference to this in episode 1 of the podcast when the Capcom Joe Kerwin says to him, Sorry to see you here. Now we'll talk about Manningly later, but back to Gene Kranz. So we're in Mission Control and the TV broadcast about Apollo 13 is on the way. And this brings us up to the point where the broadcast ends and they stir the cryotanks and oxygen tank 2 explodes. And Jim Lovell's line is, Houston, we've had a problem. And this has to be one of the most famous quotes that's actually a misquote. Lovell never said, Houston, we have a problem. He said, Houston, we've had a problem. And I think it's interesting that the misquote is so famous that they actually left the misquote in the movie rather than the real quote. So then we start episode two, and we spend all of this episode trying to understand what's wrong with the service module, then shutting it down, and it basically ends with the evacuation to the LEM. Now, quite a few listeners commented that it was a real pity that we didn't use more of the actual audio from the mission in this episode. Quite a few people wanted to hear the actual audio rather than me speaking. The interesting thing is that I did consider using this audio throughout the episode. But one problem became apparent with the audio, and it was this. It's just so calm. It's boringly calm. And it's so calm because these people are professionals. They weren't panicking, so you don't get any sense of the real drama that was taking place. And to me, the whole sequence dealing with troubleshooting the issues with the fuel cells is incredibly dramatic. And the only way to make it work was to narrate the dialogue, while at the same time filling in the listener on the significance of that dialogue and why it was so important. Now, a really good example of that is the decision to close the react valves in the fuel cells. They weren't just closing some valves. This was a decision that meant they could no longer land on the moon. Now, as technical as the episode is, and I wanted it to be technical, there is one technical issue I did leave out. And a good friend of mine, Ian in the UK, was disappointed that I left it out. And that was gimbal lock. Now, the reason I left out the gimbal lock issues was that it was incredibly difficult to explain what gimbal lock is using words alone. You really need some pictures. But also... Stopping to explain gimbal lock in the middle of episode 2 was really going to make the episode drag, so I just left it out. But the bottom line is this. The alignment platforms in the spacecraft are gimbal systems. And if you want to understand a little more about how they work, then click on some of the links I've put in the show notes and have a look. But if you turn the spacecraft through a certain sequence of manoeuvres, you can lock up the gimbals. This is gimbal lock, and it means you've locked up the guidance platform, and it forgets its alignment. This means you have to do star sightings to realign the platform. Now we know from the finale of episode 3 when they do the sun shake how important this platform is. So locking it up just after the explosion would have been a big deal. And the problem for Jim Lovell was they were being bounced around by the oxygen escaping from the ship and the bouncing was pushing them close to gimbal lock. 
and mission control was constantly telling them to be careful. Now, while we're on the subject of the alignment platform, Jim Lovell did have to do calculations to convert the platform alignment between the command module and the lunar module, and he did ask the ground for confirmation of his arithmetic. And this scene is depicted in the movie, and you can see the team in mission control checking calculations using slide rules. Now, this point is really for the geeks. If you're interested in how slide rules actually work, I've put a link in the show notes. But they fundamentally work because, at a basic level, and you may remember this from school, or you may not, the logarithm of two numbers multiplied together is equal to the sum of the logs of the individual numbers. So to make a slide rule, you take two rulers, put a log scale on them, then you allow the user to slide one ruler relative to the other. When the user wants to multiply two numbers together, they simply slide one ruler relative to the other so that they are adding one number to the other. The overall number you get is the sum of these two numbers, and this, because you're on a log scale, is the same as multiplying the numbers. So these were the pocket calculators before you had pocket calculators. Now, one of the key things in this episode is the handover of the flight director's console from Gene Kranz to Glenn Lunny. Now, we talk about this a lot on the podcast, but it can't be overemphasized just how important Glenn Lunny was in the transfer of the crew from the command module to the LEM. Gene Kranz goes off shift to go to room 210, and Lunny takes over as flight director, and he gets the lifeboat up and running, which is an incredibly complex job given the time constraints they had. And there's a fantastic quote in the book Go Flight where Ken Manningly talks about Lunny that night. And I want to read you this quote. It's a long quote, but I think it's well worth reading. Manningly says, If there was a hero, Glenn Lunny was by himself a hero. Because when he walked in the room, I guarantee you, nobody knew what the hell was going on. Glenn walked in, took over this mess, and he just brought calm to the situation. I've never seen such an extraordinary example of leadership in my entire career. Absolutely magnificent. No general or admiral in wartime could ever be more magnificent than Glenn was that night. He and he alone brought all of the scared people together. And you've got to remember that the flight controllers in those days wore, they were kids in their 30s. They were good but very few of them had ever ran into these kinds of choices in life, and they weren't used to that. All of a sudden, their confidence had been shaken. They were faced with things that they didn't understand, and Glenn walked in there, and he just kind of took charge. And of course, we end the episode with the astronauts safely in the LEM, and Gene Kranz assembling the Tiger team in room 210, which brings us to the beginning of episode three. And episode three was probably one of the hardest episodes to put together. There's so much stuff that needs to happen in this episode, and I was continuously chopping and changing the order of scenes to make it work. I think one of the really interesting things about episode three is that the vast majority of the scenes in it don't actually appear in the movie. The movie essentially jumps over all the events in this episode. It doesn't show the free return trajectory burn. It doesn't show the sun check at the end of the episode. And I have to say that the feedback we've received on the sun check sequence has been amazing. It certainly seems to have struck quite an emotional chord with listeners. Quite a few people got in touch uh, to tell us what they thought. Simon and Jess in Brisbane, Libby in Boston. People really seem to love that scene. But these scenes don't happen in the movie. 
The only real exception is the scene in the movie where they argue and discuss in room 210 whether to do a direct abort or a free return trajectory. And the guys on the Apollo 13 Minute podcast have a great discussion on this. They say this scene is essentially exposition disguised as argument. And it's completely true. It looks like the controllers are having an argument. But in reality, this is a really nice scene where the script writers are telling the viewers all of the decisions that are taking place in the room in a really dramatic way. As the guys on the Apollo 13 Minute point out, this is clever writing. And one of the exchanges that takes place during this scene in the movie is when one of the NASA team asks out loud what the Grumman guys think. The guys who designed the LEM. And in the scene, the Grumman representative gets all cagey and says there's no guarantees. And then there are more scenes later in the movie when again the Grumman guy gets cagey. So the movie portrays Grumman as doing very little to assist NASA to work out how to keep the LEM alive and get the crew home. They're portrayed as being much more interested in protecting themselves rather than getting involved. And this point is brought up by the guys on the Apollo 13 Minute podcast and they point out that it is so, so wrong. And if you've read the books, you'll see that it's wrong too. Because the fact is that the Grumman guys did an astonishing amount of work to keep the LEM functioning. And they backed their machine to the very end. And I agree with the Apollo 13 Minute podcast guys that this depiction of Grumman was all for dramatic purposes. They wanted to introduce tension. And the reality is there are a number of incidents in the movie where the same sort of tension is introduced for dramatic purposes. One is the tension between Fred Hayes and Jack Swaggart. Hayes is depicted as doubting Swaggart's ability during the mission. Now this wasn't the case at all. And the scene towards the end of the movie where the three crew members argue with one another regarding what the gauge was reading at the time Swaggart stirred the tanks. This scene never happened. But apparently the filmmakers took the view that they needed this scene to show the astronauts as human beings. Now at the very end of the episode, we get a quick introduction to the lithium hydroxide canister device that Ed Smiley has been building. The device to solve the CO2 problem. Now I know this is one of everyone's favourite scenes in the movie, when it cuts to a room in the space centre in Houston where someone throws all this stuff on the table and says that we have to make a square canister fit into the hole for a cylindrical canister using only what they have on the table. And the way this actually happened was very different. Ed Smiley knew that there would be a carbon dioxide problem as early as Monday night, the night of the explosion. He'd heard about the explosion from the news reports. He'd heard about the evacuation to the LEM, and he knew that the LEM scrubbers wouldn't last long enough to get the men home. He'd contacted one of his colleagues, and they both went to work. They worked all of Monday night and the following day on building the device, and they began testing it in their vacuum chamber in Houston. But they had an issue. And the issue was that they didn't have any lithium hydroxide canisters to do a full-scale test on. But eventually some cartridges are found at the Cape in Florida and they have to be put on a chartered flight over to Houston for Smiley and the team to test and make sure everything works. They draw up the procedures and it's Wednesday morning when Ed Smiley walks into Mission Control with his device. Which brings us up to episode 4, the episode where we spend all our time with the astronauts in the spacecraft. And when I started writing the series, I really wanted to do an episode where you actually felt you were there, travelling along with the astronauts with no break. I wanted you to feel the claustrophobia and the cold and the dampness and the constant anxiety that something else could go wrong. I wanted to make sure you didn't get a chance to relax in this episode at all. 
So in the beginning of episode 4 we approach the moon and go around the back. And I was listening to the Apollo 13 minute podcast and they had a very entertaining rant about issues with the movie. So in the movie Hayes and Swaggart are looking out the windows and talking about what they see below. They talk about Tranquility Base, Neil and Buzz's old neighbourhood. They talk about being able to see their own landing site in the Framoro Highlands. And as the Apollo 13 minute podcast guys point out, at this point in the movie, they're on the back side of the moon. But all of these landmarks are on the near side of the moon. So the geography is all wrong. But there's one really interesting landmark that Swaggart mentions, and this is the Tsiolkovsky crater, where he talks about how its ejector blanket looks like it's covered in snow. Now this Tsiolkovsky is named after the same guy who worked out the rocket equation we spoke about earlier. Then we have the famous scene where Jim Lovell asks the others what are their intentions, and then we come around the moon and make the PC plus 2 burn. Now this burn doesn't appear in the movie. We just have a bit where Jim Lovell mentions that they've completed it. Then they shut everything down, and Lovell makes the comment in the movie that now we've put Sir Isaac Newton in the driving seat. This means that they're now following a free return trajectory home following Newton's laws of motion. But the interesting thing is that this is what they would have done anyway. The spacecraft never fired its engines all the way home. And as we come back towards the Earth, we have them building the lithium hydroxide canister, which in the movie is depicted as a very dramatic race against time, but in reality was very calm. There are even some photographs of them building it, and you can see Jack Swaggart smiling. Now the other big issue they have to tackle on their long fall home is their shallowing trajectory, which needs a burn to correct without the use of the computer. Now at the time no one in mission control or in the spacecraft could figure out why the spacecraft was shallowing. They reckoned they were venting something, but they didn't know what. And in the end, it turned out to be something very, very subtle. When they powered down the lunar module, the only systems they kept switched on were the fan to circulate oxygen, the communications, and the cooling system to keep these systems cool. And it was this cooling system that caused the problem. There were wisps of steam coming out from the cooling system. That was enough to push them off course. And you're probably asking why they didn't consider this before. Well, the reason they didn't was that usually the lunar module is switched off on its journey to the moon. It's only powered up for the lunar descent and ascent. And over that short distance, this vapor venting was not a problem at all. It wouldn't even have been noticed. But when this venting is kept up for 240,000 miles, it became an issue and it was enough to push them off course. Now the other scene in the podcast I really like is the one where Jack Swaggart is asked to power back up the command module to see how cold the systems were. This whole temperature issue was a real problem for everyone trying to power back up the command module. And the problem was this. When John Aaron and the team were trying to work out how to power up the spacecraft, they went back to North American, who designed and built it, and asked, what temperatures can the guidance platform drop to and still work? And the North American guys said they had no idea. They never tested it at low temperatures because they never imagined it would ever experience these low temperatures. The only information North American had was that someone had brought one of them home one night and they'd left it in their car overnight in Boston and the temperatures had dropped to about 30 degrees Fahrenheit. But the next morning, it was still working fine. And John Aaron, when he heard this, said, and that's the best data you've got? And they said yes. Which then brings us up to episode 5. 
We start with John Aaron and Apollo 12 and the lightning strike, then we move on to the reading up of the checklist and to the final night in the spacecraft. And in the movie, this sequence is all compressed. And they depict Ken Mattingly doing a whole lot of work developing the power-up sequence, which he didn't, but he did read some of it up to the crew on the Thursday night. And in the movie, all of the read-up and pack-up of the spacecraft happens at the same time in a very compressed sequence, which I think works really, really well in terms of building tension. And speaking of the checklist, as you know from the podcast, it was John Aaron who took the lead in developing it. And he said that when he was developing it, he never for a moment thought about the fact that the people who would be executing this complicated sequence would be completely exhausted and cold. He designed a perfect technical sequence, but gave no consideration at all to human factors. And I read somewhere that he said for years after this, he used to wake up with nightmares thinking about that very fact. And it really is extraordinary that given how tired the astronauts were, Jack Swagger didn't make any mistakes when executing this checklist. And one of the stories I love that happens around this time, which I couldn't keep in the podcast because it broke up the pace of the final episode, is that they're on their final approach to Earth, just before they jettison the service and lunar modules, and Jerry Bostick, the Fido, and his team in the trench are working out how to deal with this shallowing trajectory we talked about earlier. And as Bostick is discussing this with Dave Reed, Glenn Lunny comes up to talk to them about a tricky problem. Because it turns out that on board the LEM is a mini nuclear reactor. And the reason they have this reactor is to power the instruments that they leave on the moon. But because they never landed on the moon, and they're instead bringing the LEM home, they're also bringing home this miniature nuclear reactor. Now the plan they have for the LEM is this. It'll be jettisoned just before re-entry, then it'll get pretty well burned up during re-entry, and then it will fall in the ocean, and it will take the nuclear reactor with it. But Glenn Lunny says there's a problem. The Atomic Agency has been in touch, and they're not satisfied with NASA's plan. They want to make sure that the remains of the LEM land in a very deep part of the ocean. So Jerry Bostick, who's dealing with the already complicated issues of the shallowing trajectory and re-entry, is now being asked to satisfy the requirements of the Atomic Agency. And he loses his cool. He gets angry with Lunny. And Lunny lets him get angry for a while before asking him again if he can make the agency happy. And reluctantly, Jerry Bostick says he can. But this means he has to set the trajectory of the LEM so that it'll fall into a trench off the coast of New Zealand. And in the podcast, after Lovell sends the shivering haze up to the command module just before the jettison the LEM, we see him change the LEM's trajectory before he abandons ship. And this is why he's doing it. He's doing that so it'll fall into this trench. Now the final thing I need to say about re-entry, and I need to say this because I live in Australia, is that the tracking station that communicated with Apollo 13 during re-entry was based in Australia at Honeysuckle Creek. That's why in the podcast you hear the NASA communication officer say that Apollo 13 has lost communication with Honeysuckle. And as part of preparing this podcast, I have listened to hours and hours of NASA audio, which is mostly filled with a wide variety of American accents. But here is the audio from Honeysuckle Creek. This tiny little segment is from when they're tracking the pad of Apollo 13 as it travels over the east coast of Australia during re-entry. Velocity now reading uh, 34,802 uh, feet per second, range to go uh, 2625 uh, nautical miles. Just beginning to meet the hills leading up to the Great Dividing Range. Almost over the top of Armadale. 
approaching the coast very fast. At about Coffs Harbour. Still receiving on board uh, data. Still looking good. And now out over the Pacific. From, uh, time of entry into the Earth's atmosphere. On board displays show a velocity of uh, 35,245. Then we complete re-entry and splashdown, and I end it all there. But it just seemed the most appropriate place to end it, with Gene Kranz standing at his console, crying. But obviously in real life it didn't end there. The men are picked up by the helicopter recovery crew. His is winched up first, then swaggered, and finally Lovell, the commander, is the last to leave his ship. Then they land on the carrier, and we have that really iconic photo of them walking out of the helicopter and waving. And when all this happens in the movie, and I'm sure the fans know this, we see Tom Hanks shake hands with the captain of the carrier. And the person playing the captain of the carrier is the real Jim Lovell. Apparently they wanted him to play an admiral, and Lovell said no. He said he retired from the Navy as a captain, and he wasn't going to play a higher rank in the movie. After this, they have prayers on the carrier. Again, this became a very famous photo. The men are then medically checked out. His is very ill with an infection. And all three of them have lost a lot of weight. Lovell has lost seven kilos in six days. That night, Swaggart and Lovell have dinner with the officers of the ship, but his is too sick to attend. Then the men are sent to Hawaii. And to meet them there are their loved ones. It turns out President Nixon rang Marilyn Lovell and Mary Hayes and asked them if they'd like to accompany him to Hawaii to meet their husbands. And because Swaggart was a bachelor, Nixon brought his parents. And that is roughly how it all ended. So now, what caused the explosion in Oxygen Tank 2? Now this is a fascinating story because it's got all the hallmarks of why engineering failures occur, even in very controlled projects like the space program. And to understand what happened, we need to go back to the original design of the oxygen tanks from a general perspective. Then we need to look at some specific incidents that happened to the oxygen tank that ended up in the Apollo 13 service module. Now these tanks are complex pieces of kit. They're far more than a simple little gas bottle that fits inside the service module. And the complexity comes from the manner in which they store oxygen. So they need to store it at a temperature of minus 340 degrees. So this temperature keeps the oxygen in a liquidy sort of state. This is the slushy liquidy state that we spoke about in the first episode of the podcast. But while you need to keep the gas cold, you can't let it get too cold. Now the reason you don't want it to get too cold is that if it gets too cold, it won't actually flow into the lines for use in the ship. So in other words, you need it cold, but still forming vapour, so that this vapour can flow through the lines to the fuel cells. If it gets too cold, you get no vapour, and that's bad news for the spacecraft and the crew. So to stop the gas getting too cold, you need to be able to heat up the oxygen when it's inside the tank. So fine, you need to put a heating element inside the tank. But think about that for a moment. Think about the complexity of that. You're going to put some sort of heating element in a tank containing a highly flammable gas. 
What happens if you leave the heating element on too long and you heat up the gas too much? Well, to prevent this, you put a thermostat into the tank that will automatically cut off the power and stop the heater if it starts to get too warm. Now, the way this works is that in the thermostat, there are two electrical contacts that remain closed. So they're completing an electrical circuit and allowing the heaters to work. This is when the thermostat's operating normally. But if the temperature in the tank rises above 80 degrees Fahrenheit, then these two contacts will separate, break the electrical circuit, and cut the power. That's the basic idea. So North American Aviation wins the contract for the design and building of the command and service modules. And they subcontract the design of the tanks to beach aircraft in Boulder, Colorado. Not a big deal in itself. They were subcontracting plenty of elements of the spacecraft to others. But it's here that we arrive at one of the first links in our causation chain. North American Aviation initially told Beach that the tanks would be ran on 28 volt power. Now the reason for 28 volt power is that this is the voltage that the service modules fuel cells provide. But later on, North American Aviation became concerned. And the reason they became concerned is that while the service module provides 28 volts of power when the spacecraft is in flight, the spacecraft is powered with a higher voltage prior to flight. So what I mean by that is that the spacecraft has to sit on top of the Saturn V rocket, sitting on the launch pad, going through lots of tests prior to the flight. And during this time, power to the spacecraft is provided by the launch pad generators. And these generators provide power not at 28 volts, but at 65 volts. And what worries North American aviation is that this higher voltage has the potential to damage the lower voltage components in the spacecraft. And what we're interested in is the heating systems in the cryogenic tanks. So North American makes a decision and tells Beach to throw out the original design requirement of 28 volts and instead design the tanks to be able to cope with the higher voltage of 65 volts. And this is what Beach does, except they don't change everything. For some reason, they don't upgrade the thermostat switches. So now we have a heating system in an oxygen tank designed to cope with high voltages containing a key component that is only able to cope with lower voltages. So that's the general background to these tanks. Now let's talk about tank two, the tank that actually exploded. So two years before the launch of Apollo 13, the oxygen tank is shipped to North American on the 11th of March, 1968. Now this tank is initially in Apollo 10, not in Apollo 13. So how are these tanks actually installed? First, we need to talk about this because it's a lot more complicated than just opening up the side of the service module and installing a tank. And this is because inside the service module, there's a tangle of piping and wiring surrounding the tank. So the way they cope with this is they attach the tank and all the piping and wiring to a metal frame or shelf. Then they install this frame in the service module. So this installation is completed, but then over the months that follow, technical improvements are made to the design of the tanks. So the engineers decide they'll remove the tanks from Apollo 10 and replace them with newer tanks. Then the older tanks that they've removed, including our tank 2, 
will be upgraded and used in another service module. So far so good. But it's here we get to the second link in our causation chain. When they're removing tank 2, they first need to remove the frame it's attached to. So they connect a crane to the frame, they undo the four bolts that hold the frame in the service module, and they begin to lift the frame out. But it turns out they have not removed all four bolts. One of the bolts is still in place. The crane tries to lift the frame, it rises 50 millimeters, the bolt that's still attached catches. This sudden stop makes the crane slip, and this slip causes the frame to suddenly fall back into place. This gives it a jolt. Now when this happens, an inspection is needed to make sure everything's okay. So they inspect the frame and the tanks, and they find that everything's okay. And this inspection is all written down in a file for our tank too. So the tanks are removed, they're upgraded, and they're installed in the Apollo 13 service module. So now we have a tank with a heating system designed for 65 volts, containing only a 28 volt thermostat, and this tank has been given a jolt. Now, Fast forward to early 1970 and the Apollo 13 Saturn V booster, along with its service module, is sitting on the launch pad at the Cape and it's going through all its testing in preparation for the launch. And one of the key tests they're doing is the countdown demonstration test. In this test, they run through everything leading right up to the point of ignition. And through the tests, astronauts are suited up, the cabin is pressurized and the cryogenic tanks are fully pressurized. And during this particular test, Jim Lovell, Fred Hayes, and Ken Mattingly are working away. At this point, Mattingly hadn't been replaced by Swaggart. The test goes well right up until the very end, and then they discover an issue. The pad technicians are trying to drain the cryogenic tanks, but one of them, oxygen tank 2, won't drain. Now the way the pad technicians drain these tanks is to pump oxygen in a gaseous form into the tanks through one line. This then forces the liquid oxygen out through another line called the drain tube. All works well with draining the two hydrogen tanks. And there's no problem draining oxygen tank one either. But as I've said, they have a problem with oxygen tank two. When they try and drain it, they only vent about 8% of its contents. The majority of the slushy liquid is still inside. So what's the problem? Well, the pad crew take a look at the tank's manufacturing history and they notice that it's been jolted like we spoke about earlier. They decide that when it got dropped, it must have knocked its drain tubes out of alignment. Because if this has happened, the oxygen that they're feeding into the tank can leak directly out the drain line. In other words, the gaseous oxygen they're pumping into the tank is just coming straight out again instead of forcing the liquid oxygen out. It's just bypassing the liquid oxygen. Okay, so what are they going to do about that? Now it's obviously concerning, but the most important question is, should they replace the tank? Well, maybe not, because it only seems to be the drain tube that isn't working. The rest of the tank seems to be working fine. And here's a key bit. The drain tube is only ever used when the ships 
on the ground for the training purposes we just talked about. It isn't actually used in flight because from that point onwards the tank won't need to be drained. So the piece of the tank that seems to be damaged will not actually be used in the flight and the rest of the tank seems to be working fine. So there may be no need to replace the tank. It could be fine for flight. But they still need to figure out how to get the rest of the liquid oxygen out of it. They need to get it drained. So to drain it, they come up with a novel solution. Why not just turn on the heaters in the tank and raise the temperature of the oxygen? This will slowly convert the liquid oxygen into gas, which will then vent out through the normal vent tubes, not the drain tubes. This will empty the tank. But is it safe? What if the tank gets too hot? The heaters will need to be left on for a long time. Well, that's not a worry, but the tank has a thermostat that will prevent overheating. The inside of the tank will never get above 80 degrees, so it'll be fine. So this procedure is explained to Jim Lovell, and he asks if it's the best solution they have. And they say, yep, it's the best. Then Lovell asks if the tank is working well apart from the drain tube issue. And they say it is, and they say that the drain tube will play no role in the flight. It's only an issue now. Then Lovell asks how long it will take to remove and replace the tank. And the pad crew say this would probably take 45 hours. But after they've replaced it, they'll need to test it. And this is the real issue. If something goes wrong in the tests, they could miss their launch window. And if they miss that, the flight could be delayed for a month. And Lovell doesn't like that idea at all. So he says, well, if you're all comfortable with it, then I am too. So it's decided. They won't replace the tank and they'll use this unconventional method to drain it. So on the evening of the 27th of March 1970, 15 days before the launch of Apollo 13, the plan is put into action. The warming coils in Oxygen Tank 2 are switched on and it's this action that brings us to link number 3 in our causation chain. The pad crew reckon it will take 8 hours to vent the tank. Now if the heaters are left on non-stop for 8 hours, then the temperature in the tank will get above 80 degrees. But the thermostat will cut the power and stop this temperature rise. And as well as the thermostat controlling the temperature in the tank, an engineer is also put in charge of overseeing the venting operation. And this engineer will be watching an instrument panel that will tell him if the temperature in the tank goes above 80 degrees. So this approach seems, at least on the surface, very reasonable. But here is what actually happens. The temperature in tank 2 begins to rise. And when it reaches the critical temperature, the thermostat tries to switch off the heaters. But the 65 volt power running through the 28 volt thermostat is enough to weld the two connectors closed. Now contact can't be broken and the heaters won't switch off. So now the temperature inside the tank is free to rise and rise and rise. And it does. And it's here we get to our almost final link in the causation chain. What about the engineer watching the temperature gauge on the instrument panel? 
didn't they see the internal temperature rising? And if they did, why didn't they shut down the heaters manually? And the answer is they didn't see the temperature rise. And they didn't see it because the maximum rating on the gauge never went above 80 degrees. And it never went above 80 degrees because the maximum reading on the gauge was 80 degrees. It couldn't actually read higher. No one believed there was a need for the gauge to be able to read a higher temperature because no one believed a higher temperature could actually occur. But inside the tank it's far higher than 80 degrees. It's almost over a thousand degrees. And at the end of eight hours, this has got rid of all the oxygen, but it has also burned off the Teflon insulation from the tank's internal wiring. Now think about what's going to happen. In the future, this tank will be filled with oxygen again, a highly flammable gas just waiting for a spark to jump between some exposed wiring. And this is exactly what happens. 17 days later, Jack Swaggart switches on the fans to stir the cryogenic tanks. Now, he had done this twice before in the mission and all had been well. But this time, a spark flies. It ignites some of the remaining Teflon. There is a fast build-up of heat and pressure in the tank. And the neck of tank 2 gets blown off. The semi-sludge liquid oxygen suddenly turns into a gas, fills bay 4 of the service module, and this increase in pressure blows the external panel off the service module. This panel then strikes the high-gain antenna, and it's this that causes the channel switching that the INCO reports to Gene Kranz in Mission Control. Now, Tank 1 is still okay at this point, but because it shares common piping with Tank 2, and because this piping has been ripped apart by the explosion, the oxygen in tank 1 is also beginning to escape. Now add to all this. The explosion jolts the ship, which causes some of the altitude controllers to close. So now these jets are permanently disabled. So now we have a ship that's bouncing around. The jolt from the explosion has shoved the ship, the venting of tank 1 is pushing it around, and now the autopilot in the ship has kicked in to try and stabilise everything. It's firing to stabilise the ship. But because some of its jets are not available to fire because they're disabled, there's no way for the ship to get control. This is the beginning of the Apollo 13 emergency. And the rest of the story you know. But what happened afterwards? Well, just eight months after Apollo 13, Apollo 14 headed for the moon. In mission control, Jim Lovell sat and watched Al Shepard walk around the landing site that should have been his in the Fra Moro Highlands. And what happened to the rest of the people in this story? Well, Fred Hayes was meant to be the commander of Apollo 19, but because of budget cuts, this mission was canned and he never flew in space again. Ken Mattingly, after the whole measles saga, would actually get flying in space and he became the command module pilot for Apollo 16. Deke Slayton, who worried so much about the astronauts, would fly in space in 1975 as part of the Apollo-Soyuz mission, where an Apollo command module would dock with a Russian Soyuz craft. Jack Lausma, or Capcom, would fly in space in 1973 as part of the Skylab program, and Joe Kerwin, the Capcom on duty during re-entry, would also fly in the Skylab program 
And if you really want to pick a bittersweet element of the Apollo 13 story, it was what happened to Jack Swaggart. He never flew in space again. Instead, he decided to go into politics. He ran for the Senate and lost. Then in 1982, he went up for election again. This time for the House of Representatives. And he won. But the really sad thing is that a month before his election, he was diagnosed with a very aggressive case of lymphoma. Then three days before his inauguration, he died. So there you have it. This is the end of our discussions on Apollo 13. And with a series like this, there are many people who need to be thanked for putting up with me talking about it endlessly. It took about 18 months to put this together. Very quickly, they are Anne-Marie, Bruce, Michelle, Jacqueline, Rianne, Ian, Simon, Mark and Emma. Without your feedback and support, it simply wouldn't have been possible to get this out. So what's up next? Well, I've been getting a lot of requests for new episodes. Now, the plan is that we will return to more typical short-form Brady Haywood podcast-style episodes for a while, but we will also do more long-form series like Apollo 13, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Now, we are in the process of re-releasing Apollo 13 as a standalone series. This will be called Saving Apollo 13, and the reason for putting it out as a standalone series is that we think it will reach a wider audience than it would ordinarily get if it was left tucked away in the Brady Hayward podcast. And as part of this release, we are working with a fantastic company called Waveland Creative. Now, they're based in Melbourne, Australia, and if you want help getting a podcast up and running or publicizing it, then go and talk to Adam and the team down in Melbourne because they are fantastic to work with. So that's the relaunch of Apollo 13. So what are the plans for the other long-form podcast? Serious. What are the stories we have in mind? Well, there are lots we could choose from. I'd love to do a series on Apollo 8, which is probably, as I've said, my favourite Apollo mission. People such as my friend Melissa have been suggesting that we should do Chernobyl, which I've been thinking about and reading about for a while long before the excellent HBO series came along. But we've already picked the topic for the new series, and I've done a lot of research on it already. But you're going to have to be really patient because these series take months and months and months to put together. And this one will be a big one. It will be five or six episodes long with a soundtrack and lots of sound effects. It will not be about space, but the stars will definitely play a supporting role. So what is it? Well, I'm not going to tell you directly. Instead, I'll give you a clue. And to have a little fun... I'd like you, when you get this clue, to tweet or tag our Facebook page with other clues so that we can build a bit of a momentum for this. So once you get this clue, jump on Twitter and tweet more clues and I'll retweet them. Or instead, tag them on our Facebook page. Links to both are in the show notes. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening and for your support. And I'll see you in the next episode. Goodbye. And here's your clue.
Who is the third who walks always beside you? When I count, there are only you and I together. But when I look ahead up the white road, there is always another one walking beside you, gliding, wrapped in a brown mantle, hooded. I do not know whether a man or a woman. But who is that on the other side of you?